Welcome to today's program entitled Evaluating Novel Targeted Therapies in RA, Clinical and Cost Considerations for Achieving Treatment Goals. My name is Jeff Dunn. I am Vice President of Pharmacy for Magellan RX, and my co-presenter is Dr. Stanley Cohen, who is Clinical Professor, Department of Internal Medicine at UT Southwestern Medical Center, also co-director of the Division of Rheumatology at Presbyterian Hospital, and co-medical director at Metroplex Clinical Research Center in Dallas, Texas. This program is approved for one CME, CNE, CPE credit. Uh, after the program, you can download a PDF of the presentation. You'll find this under the Event Resources tab on the left side of your screen under the headshot. If you have any questions for either Dr. Cohen or myself throughout the program, please don't wait. Type those into the box, which is located in the lower left-hand corner of your screen, and we will address those questions in the order in which they are submitted during the last 10 minutes of the presentation. Uh, after the, the formal presentations and Q&A, you will be redirected back to the landing page uh, to complete the post-test and evaluation. After you do this, you will then be able to download or print your certificate. This program is provided by North American Center for Continuing Medical Education, LLC, which is an HMP company. We would like to thank them for all of their support. This program is all supported by is also supported by an educational grant from Gilead Sciences Incorporated, and we very much would like to thank them for that support as well. The learning objectives are as follows. By the end of the program, we should be able to describe the clinical, social, and economic burden of RA and its impact on planned populations, evaluate the current and emerging therapy treatments, guidance, and evolving targeted strategies for the management of RA. We should be able to integrate new and emerging JAK inhibitors into informed plan and formative decisions, and finally, implement strategies to reduce access barriers to safe, effective treatments for RA. A succinct overview of the managed care aspects of RA show that uh, RA is complicated. Uh, it's associated with serious uh, consequences and comorbidities. From an operational perspective, RA is part of a larger autoimmune formulary contracting category, and this complicates things a lot, and I'll talk more about that. But when we talk about RA, we also are factoring in psoriasis and the GI indications such as ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, and it makes the uh, management and financial aspects of, of this category of RA uh, very complicated. Uh, the drugs uh, that we're going to be talking about are very expensive, and we've seen significant price increases over the, over the years, and that's the number one uh, category of spend uh, under the specialty benefit, which we'll uh, delve into here in a minute. Uh, there's also a need to ensure appropriate and cost-effective therapies are used and sequenced appropriately, and like I alluded to a minute ago, uh, contracting issues exist. Unfortunately, we do not have RA contracts. We have autoimmune contracts, uh, and, the, and the contracts are on the drug, not indication. So until we get indication-based contracting, again, this is very complicated, and we have to factor in all of the autoimmune disease states when we're uh, making RA formulary decisions. Uh, RA uh, is complicated, uh, like we said, and its uh, disease burden extends well beyond the joint. And we see down here, importantly, there are uh, comorbid components of this, including psychosocial aspects, which include uh, impaired uh, quality of life, fatigue, depression, cognitive dysfunction, uh, disability, uh, and then there's, the, there's also a link to cardiovascular disease, osteoporosis, uh, lung disease, and cancer, which is 
a component of the disease itself, but also a potential adverse event uh, of some of the drugs that we're going to be talking about. So th this is all interrelated, though. It's circular on purpose. And so uh, when we talk about the treatment approaches and the treatment paradigms, it, it really needs to be multifactorial. It can't just be narrow focused on a, the silo of RA. Uh, here are some statistics uh, on the clinical burden of RA. Uh, it's estimated that about a half percent to one percent of the U.S. population has rheumatoid arthritis. This accounts for about 2.9 million ambulatory care visits per year. Uh, and over, there are over 15,000 hospitalizations uh, with RA every year where RA is listed as the principal diagnosis, so that probably underestimates the prevalence because of coding issues. Uh, RA patients have a five times higher cardiovascular event rate versus the general population, and many RA patients are unable to work within 10 years of onset, so there is a, a very important uh, impact on disability. Uh, that's getting better now uh, with the uh, newer drugs and the biologics. Uh, if we go back 15, 20 years before the biologics, uh, the disability was much worse than it is today. So that's been a great advancement. Uh, and then importantly, the mortality rate is 1.5 to 1.6 times higher uh, in RA patients versus the general population. So RA is, has a huge uh, clinical burden. RA also has significant uh, economic burden. Uh, here uh, we see that uh, obviously patients who have RA cost a lot more than the patients who do not have RA. Uh, now this is driven by a combination of a couple things, uh, higher pharmacy costs, more office visits, uh, more emergency care, and more inpatient stays. Now, unfortunately, a lot of this is being driven by the pharmacy side of it, the pharmacy component, uh, because again, these drugs are very effective, but they're very expensive, and we've seen a lot of price increases. Uh, now, the total ex incremental expenditure of RA patients is estimated, or was estimated in 2012, to be over $22 billion. Uh, that's obviously going to be higher now, uh, in, you know, as we get closer to you know, 2020, uh, again, given the, the higher cost of the drug component. Unfortunately, the cost of RA treatment increases over time as function declines. Uh, RA is a chronic progressive debilitative disease. Here we see the severity on the y-axis, disease duration on the, on the uh, x-axis. So as uh, time goes on, uh, the severity obviously is worse, and that includes uh, disability, inflammation, and radiographic scores. The uh, medical resource utilization is highest in patients with highly active RA versus patients who have low disease activity. So we can see that here broken out by uh, low disease activity, high disease activity, and patients in uh, remission um, on the x-axis. So the goal here is to get the high disease activity patients into remission. Now, again, we're investing uh, in expensive drug therapy, so we really need to control the disease uh, to realize the uh, financial investment uh, and financial benefit of these therapies. As I mentioned, the RA treatment goals are multifactorial. Uh, they really should include uh, maximizing the long-term health-related quality of life, controlling symptoms, uh, preventing structural damage, normalizing function, and then improving and enhancing and maintaining social participation. Now, the third and fourth here, the prevention of structural damage and normalization of function are really probably the ones that are more, most relevant to our managed care people on the phone, uh, but all of these are extremely important to providers and to patients themselves. Uh, but these all should be taken into consideration whenever we're uh, making a treatment decision for any of our members or patients. Subsequent uh, RA treatment strategy 
uh, should focus on early and aggressive treatment. Uh, we need to attenuate the uh, inflammation or inflammatory component of this uh, quickly, and then we need to find the right drug at the right time to the right patient. So this includes uh, treating to target, uh, where the goal is to achieve minimal or no signs or symptoms of active inflammation, and then maintaining and achieving tight uh, control, which is to minimize the uh, level of disease activity over time through individualized therapy. And that's the disconnect, and one of the challenges is marrying this idea of individualized therapy for all of our patients with the formulary concept, which is a population tool. And unfortunately, pop, you know, we don't have thousands of different formularies, so we need to find that balance of uh, doing the right thing for the majority of our patients, but having exceptions for patients who need individualized decision-making. Uh, and this involves continually reevaluation. Um, and this really is, we need to, we're making smart investments uh, in these expensive medications. Digging deeper, uh, early and aggressive uh, treatment elicits greater disease control. And here we see, uh, again, patients on, the percent of patients on the y-axis and, um, and the disease activity broken out on the x-axis with low disease activity and remission. And here we see that uh, there is, uh, and th this data comes from four early TNF methotrexate studies, and those studies reported that uh, a higher proportion of patients with very early RA achieved low disease activity uh, and remission when treated more aggressively. So, you know, I think a lot of us get uh, a little panicked because of the cost of these medications, but the data shows that if we uh, treat aggressively and treat early, then the long-term clinical and financial uh, benefits uh, follow that. So treating the target uh, is, is this concept, um, and it, it really improves remission rates. And this data comes from the uh, TACORA uh, study, which is, stands for tight control of rheumatoid arthritis. And here we see that uh, patients who are uh, treated to target with aggressive early therapy receive much higher uh, ACR scores and remission scores than those who did not. So if you look at the right here, remission is an example. If we treat intensively and aggressively in early, 65% of patients re achieve remission versus only 16% uh, with routine treatment with periodic uh, follow-up and evaluation. So it's important that we close the loop and that the provider and the payer is on the same page and we're working collectively together to make sure that these patients are uh, actively and aggressively managed. Uh, we have uh, many effective uh, drugs to treat RA. Uh, we know a lot about RA. So the question is, why aren't more patients uh, in remission? And uh, unfortunately, there um, exist uh, many barriers to RA disease control. Um, again, this is, like we said, is, is also is, is multifactorial, like the disease itself. So interestingly, um, no adjustment in RA therapy despite documented higher moderate disease activity often occurs. And this may be due to irreversible joint damage being done, uh, patient-driven preference for ther current therapy, so they may be feel invested in a certain therapy and, 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 not, and be resistant to change to maybe a, a drug that would be more effective, um, insufficient time to assess the effect of a, a therapy. On the flip side of that, sometimes we're making changes uh, before we actually know if a drug is going to work. There are some safety concerns with some of these drugs, which include, like we saw earlier, it can include things like uh, infection and uh, cancer. Uh, the presence of comorbid conditions makes it harder to manage these are complex patients, and there's uh, usually a lot of drugs on board and a lot of physicians involved. 
and that makes the uh, the management a little bit more complex. And then this is a resistant disease in the sense that it's chronic and progressive, and uh, there is no cure. Uh, the guiding principles of pharmacological pharmacologic management of RA include uh, constant surveillance, education, and adjustment. So the uh, duration of therapeutic response varies among patients. Uh, Long-term RA treatment often involves a sequence of different therapies, and the optimal sequence is determined by response to therapy, disease progression, and effect of different therapies on disease pathways is the ultimate goal. So we have to, again, through our formulary, make the uh, right formulary cost-effective value decisions, but we have to marry that with the care management individualized component uh, to make sure that we are sequencing and uh, making the right decisions for patients as they progress along the spectrum of RA. But um, this is all important to talk about, uh, but the, you know, here, is, here is, in my mind, one of the key issues. And this uh, slide comes from the Express Scripts 2018 Drug Trend Report, and it shows that uh, inflammatory conditions, which includes RA, but again, all of the, the, the indications that these drugs have, uh, is the number one category of spend under the specialty pharmacy benefit by a long shot. So two things I want to point out here on this slide. Uh, the first is the, if you look at the x-axis, is, this is dollars in PMPM per year. And we see here that uh, inflammatory conditions account for almost $160 PMPM. So that means if I provide insurance for 2 million people, uh, every single one of those 2 million people, $160 of their uh, premium uh, goes to paying for these drugs uh, every single year. So it's a, it's a uh, massive uh, cost uh, category for uh, every payer. Uh, the second thing I want to point out is the last column, which is trend. Um, and this has actually slowed. If you look back over the last five to 10 years, we've seen 20, 30, 40% year-over-year increases in the cost of this category. Uh, now, uh, in 2018, it was about 14%. That's now, that, that includes both uh, increased utilization, but also price increases. So that far outpaces the, uh, the, the general uh, increase in, in cost in general. So this is a, uh, a very, very important category for a lot of reasons. So with that, uh, I will now turn it over to Dr. Cohen, uh, who will talk about the current and emerging treatment guidance and evolving targeted therapies. Uh, Dr. Cohen. Uh, thank you, Dr. Dunn. Uh, we have made uh, tremendous uh, strides in the management of patients uh, with rheumatoid arthritis uh, since the uh, introduction of biologics in 1998. However, uh, clinical trials programs have demonstrated that biologics are ineffective in up to 40 to 50 percent of patients uh, treated. Uh, Real-world experience, observational registry, suggests that we're having to cycle through therapies to maintain clinical benefit, and many patients are having to switch therapy over short periods of time, 12 to 24 months. Uh, multiple studies have demonstrated that sustained remission is very uncommon in less than 10% of patients. We have no treatment biomarkers to help us dictate therapy uh, and determine which patients might uh, benefit by one therapy over another, so our, our therapeutic trials are purely empiric. We have uh, fortunately identified the adverse event profile of these therapies, but in patients with multiple comorbidities, this might limit the utilization of these biologic therapies uh, due to uh, risk of uh, complications such as serious infections or bone marrow suppression or so forth. Um, over the last uh, two and a half decades, uh, the various signaling pathways have been delineated 
uh, and have demonstrated uh, the various uh, kinase proteins that are involved after a ligand binding to the receptor on the cell surface, resulting in transmission of signal to the nucleus, RNA production, and uh, production of uh, inflammatory cytokine, inflammatory proteins involved in rheumatoid arthritis and other autoimmune diseases. Uh, for many years, we worked on the P38 MAP kinase uh, pathway and spleen tyrosine kinase pathway, and due to limited benefit and toxicity, those did not move forward. PI3K has been evaluated with limited efficacy in rheumatoid arthritis, although available in oncology, and F-kappa-beta has not been uh, evaluated yet in uh, patients with RA, although preclinical models have suggested benefit. But the uh, JAK-STAT pathway, Janus kinase pathway, uh, has been uh, utilized and will present a great deal of that data that led to approval of now three uh, JAK inhibitors. Another potential target uh, which is being looked at presently in clinical trials is the Bruton tyrosine kinase pathway. Uh, BTK is a pivotal protein in B cell receptor signaling, and it also plays a role in FC gamma receptor signaling in, in myeloid cells, and therefore is an ideal target not only for rheumatoid arthritis, uh, to downregulate autoantibody production, antigen presentation, uh, but also cytokine production, but is also a potential target in lupus and related autoimmune diseases. There are over 90 protein tyrosine kinases identified. There's a receptor uh, PTKs, platelet-derived growth factor, epidermal growth factor receptor, and there are multiple non-receptor uh, PTKs, including uh, the Janus kinase pathway. Uh, multiple therapies that inhibit uh, protein tyrosine kinases are available in oncology and uh, preceded the development in rheumatology. Uh, shown here is a depiction of the various isoforms of the Janus JAK family. So there's four isoforms, JAK1, JAK2, JAK3, and TIC2, uh, who then uh, will autophosphorylate or phosphorylate downstream stack family members, STAT1 uh, through STAT6. Seven of those uh, proteins are uh, again, targets for the Janus kinase molecules. It's important to know that the JAKs signal in pairs. Uh, so you need at least two JAKs to phosphorate uh, the STAT proteins. And we have uh, been able over the last many years to identify the various cytokines that are involved in particular pathways. So for those with uh, JAK1 and JAK3, which has a gamma chain, which associates with those particular uh, JAK molecules, IL-2, 4, 7, 9, 15, and 21 signal through JAK1, JAK3, uh, gamma interferon through JAK1 and JAK2, as well as IL-6 through JAK1, which is very important in inflammation, IL-12, 23, and JAK2, TIC2. And again, the um, uh, JAK2 pathway, uh, looking at JAK2 with JAK2, that's where erythropoietin and thrombopoietin will signal through there. And uh, originally, when these molecules were identified, there was significant concerns raised about inhibiting JAK2, uh, resulting in severe anemia, and uh, the various animal models knocking out JAK2 and JAK1 were lethal, so there was a lot of concern if these molecules uh, could be effective in humans, and indeed uh, they have turned out uh, to do so. Because of the different cytokines that uh, uh, lead, uh, that uh, bind to different uh, receptors and utilize different JAK, uh, molecules. There have been attempts to develop preferential JAK3, JAK1 inhibitors like tofacitinib uh, or filgotinib and um, upacitinib, which are more JAK1 inhibitors. Baricitinib was a JAK1, JAK2 inhibitor. And shown here is preclinical work we're not going to go into. There's enzyme assays, uh, whole blood assays where you can demonstrate differences in Janus kinase inhibition. To date, however, 
in the clinical efficacy and safety of these molecules, this has not translated into clinical results. So even though this is very interesting and there may be subtle differences between uh, the inhibitors of the, of the JAKs, uh, it really has not made a difference in clinical efficacy or safety. As uh, shown here, we now have three uh, approved JAK inhibitors. Tofacitinib was approved in 2012, baricitinib in 2018, upadacitinib recently approved in 2019. Uh, Tofacitinib is approved not only for RA but psoriatic arthritis and ulcerative colitis. You can see on this slide all the other indications which are being uh, evaluated for these uh, inhibitors. Uh, Filgotinib, which is felt to be a preferential JAK1 preclinically, is, uh, is wrapping up their development in rheumatoid arthritis, and you can see the diseases it's being utilized for as well. Again, there's subtle differences in the PKPD. These drugs all have a very rapid onset, short half-life. Uh, most of these, except for filgotinib, are metabolized by the cytochrome P450 system, which does need to some, to have some concerns about other drug interactions like ketoconazole and rifampin. Um, Tofacitinib is primarily excreted uh, by the liver and 30% by the uh, kidney. Baricitinib is primarily uh, kidney and therefore potentially need to reduce the dose. And this says 4 milligrams here, which is the dose which is approved worldwide, along with the 2 milligram dose. But only in North America, baricitinib is approved at the 2 milligram dose and only in TNF failures, where these other therapies are all upadacitinib and tofacitinib are approved in methotrexate incomplete responders. Filgotinib, we're assuming, will be approved in methotrexate incomplete responders as well, and has two doses, and we're waiting to see if the, they will go to the FDA with both doses or just one dose. Upadacitinib also is only approved at the 15 milligram dose. The 30 milligram dose was not more effective and had more toxicity. This is the uh, a depiction of the clinical trial program for tofacitinib, and this is identical to all of the programs that have been done so far for all of the JAK inhibitors that are approved or awaiting approval. Uh, patients were looked at who are methotrexate incomplete responders or DMARD incomplete responders or methotrexate incomplete responders with an active control such as adalimumab. And then there were shorter studies looking at TNF incomplete responders and uh, also looking at patients who were no longer on DMARDs where it was given as monotherapy. This uh, looks across the whole clinical trial program, and what we have on the y-axis is the ACR50 response with the various studies. Uh, the purple is uh, placebo um, and uh, 5 milligram tofacitinib, which was the approved dose, 10 milligram dose BID, which was not approved. And here on the standard study, you can see adalimumab in yellow, and you can see the statistically different and superior response for both doses of tofacitinib as well as adalimumab compared uh, to placebo, and these first three studies on the left are with background uh, methotrexate. Uh, the STEP study also was background methotrexate with biologic therapy. Monotherapy is the solo study shown here. So significant ACR50 responses. With all of these therapies, the response is rapid. Uh, you can see here, looking at the percent of patients with an ACR20 response, at one month was approaching 40-50%, and at two weeks was 20-30% to 30 compared to placebo. So this is one of the key features of these uh, JAK inhibitors, is a rapid response. And if you have a patient who hasn't responded by eight weeks of therapy, the patient is most likely not going to respond. Uh, radiographic studies were uh, a part of the clinical trial program for all of the JAK inhibitors. Shown here, tofacitinib 10 milligram BID, was statistically different from placebo in the primary analysis. There was a trend for the 5-milligram dose here, 
these studies are very hard to do because of patient dropouts and the way statistical analysis is done and have a lot of issues with them. When looking at the high likely uh, progressors of radiographic progression, you can see that both doses were protective against radiographic progression. And then a subsequent study looking at early rheumatoid arthritis where patients received tofacitinib 5 milligrams BID monotherapy uh, or tofacitinib 10 milligrams BID monotherapy or just methotrexate monotherapy. And the co-primary endpoint was an ACR50 response. And uh, tofacitinib was statistically superior, as you can see, 47%, 56% compared to 27%, but also was protective as far as structural progression compared to methotrexate uh, um, monotherapy. This is the baricitinib program, essentially the same uh, clinical trial study design, early RA, methotrexate incomplete responders, biologic incomplete responders. This is the clinical trial data from the methotrexate incomplete responders. And again, 4 milligram baricitinib in uh, the darker uh, brownish color, uh, the adalimumab in the yellowish color, both were statistically superior uh, to placebo at uh, week 24. Uh, and uh, you can see uh, ACR50 and ACR70, uh, where baricitinib plus methotrexate was superior to continuing methotrexate alone. Looking at radiographic progression, again, beta, uh, baricitinib and adalimumab overlapped each other. And look at this as a probability uh, plot. You can see that more than uh, 70 to 80 percent of patients did not progress their radiographs. And with uh, baricitinib, it was uh, 79 to 80 percent compared to 70 percent on methotrexate alone. So this demonstrates a statistical superiority as far as blunting radiographic progression. Then I wanted to show this one slide. This is 2 milligrams versus 4 milligrams of baricitinib. The US FDA did not approve the 4 milligram dose of baricitinib uh, because they felt, based on their review, that the 2 milligram dose was as effective and that the side effect profile may be somewhat more problematic with the 4 milligram dose. However, the 4 milligram dose is approved everywhere in the world but the United States and is actually the number one JAK inhibitor being prescribed, XUS. So we will learn a lot of data in the real world, real world scenario about um, how that dose uh, uh, works and what the true safety profile is in a larger number of patients. Again, finally, early RA, both baricitinib monotherapy and baricitinib plus methotrexate were statistically superior to placebo uh, here looking at uh, ACR responses, ACR 20, 50, and 70 over 24 and 52 weeks. Upadacitinib, again, uh, just uh, as you can see here, methotrexate naive, conventional synthetic DMARD naive, and uh, biologic uh, DMARD incomplete responders. And uh, the, ver the clinical trial program that led to registration, uh, one study is still uh, ongoing, and that's uh, abatacept uh, versus upadacitinib. Uh, this is an interesting study where the patients were with active rheumatoid arthritis, inadequate response to methotrexate, came in and received upadacitinib monotherapy, 15 or 30 milligrams, or continued their methotrexate through week 14. The primary endpoint was the ACR20 or DAS28 CRP less than or equal to 3.2. And what they found is even with withdrawing methotrexate, which we've always been concerned about doing in the past, the patients did not flare. And they had a very, very good response, 68 and 71% ACR20 response to compare to 41% of patients continuing methotrexate. And looking at DAS low disease activity was statistically superior to methotrexate 
as well. Notice again, there was not much difference in the 15 and 30 milligram dosage of upadacitinib. Again, uh, another study looking at conventional synthetic DMARDs, statistically significant difference with UPA at both doses. But again, I want to point out this very rapid response in the middle slides here, looking at the rate of response over uh, time uh, in uh, patients uh, looking at ACR20 and ACR70. Finally, the filgotinib program. Uh, again, uh, this is ideal, to, uh, the same exact design as we've seen with the other protocols. Finch-1 was there, a study looking at filgotinib 200 or filgotinib 100 milligrams plus methotrexate compared to alimumab plus methotrexate. <clears throat> at the end of 24 weeks, patients could be re-randomized to filgotinib plus methotrexate if they were on placebo. Bottom line, uh, both doses of filgotinib plus methotrexate were superior, were, were superior to placebo and similar to alimumab shown here in yellow at week 24 and at week 12 rapid response that was sustained. Uh, this is uh, another study looking at early RA, looking at 100 milligrams of filgotinib plus methotrexate, 200 milligrams of filgotinib plus methotrexate, or filgotinib monotherapy compared to methotrexate in purple. And what you can see that over 24 weeks, as similar to what we saw with baricitinib and tofacitinib and upadacitinib, uh, filgotinib either in combination therapy uh, was superior to uh, methotrexate, at week 24, the monotherapy did not quite achieve superiority, but this was primarily due to this very, very high placebo response seen in this particular, particular study. If you take a look at more robust response uh, criteria, such as uh, DAS28CRP of remission, or CDI remission, or SDI remission, or Boolean remission, uh, you can see that uh, even the monotherapy dose in blue here was superior to placebo, uh, uh, which was the methotrexate uh, arm. Radiographic progression here, looking at the modified total SHARP score, again, uh, filgotinib plus methotrexate or filgotinib monotherapy was superior uh, to methotrexate alone and prevented uh, radiographic progression. So there's a lot of interest uh, in uh, these new targeted synthetic DMARDs. Their utilization is increasing rapidly. Uh, there's been interest in monotherapy because we know that even with biologic therapies, uh, one in three RA patients are using monotherapy. We often see patients who come into us and tell us that they're no longer using their uh, methotrexate, they've stopped it on their own, and they feel fine without it. So what is the data? Uh, this is a, a compilation of the tofacitinib studies. Uh, the one on the left here is the oral start study, which was uh, methotrexate in purple compared to 5 and 10 milligrams of tofacitinib in hatched bars here. Again, monotherapy. The oral strategy study compared methotrexate monotherapy to uh, uh, tofacitinib monotherapy compared to tofacitinib plus methotrexate at two different doses showed that monotherapy was almost as effective as the combination therapy, not quite. And, the, and then the solo study, again, monotherapy compared to placebo was superior. Uh, we did a study recently, just recently published in uh, Lancet Rheumatology, where we took people who, after six months on tofacitinib plus methotrexate, were blindly randomized to withdrawing methotrexate or continuing methotrexate. And what we showed at the end of another six months was that uh, monotherapy was non-inferior to combination therapy at the end of six months, shown on the graph here on the right, looking at the delta of the DAS-28 ESR. 
So again, suggesting that patients in very low disease activity who are doing well with a targeted synthetic DMR JAK inhibitor could withdraw their methotrexate and continue to do well. Uh, this next slide um, is looking at a survival curves, Kaplan-Meier survival plot in an uh, observational registry. And uh, what I want to point out is that uh, in the bottom part of the slide, you're looking at TNF inhibitors, and you can see that monotherapy had less or lower rate of survival than the lighter uh, purple, which is uh, combination therapy. But the top of the slide where you're looking at blue and lighter blue is TOFA, tofacitinib, and it doesn't seem to make any difference if you're on combination therapy or monotherapy as far as survival over three years, suggesting that uh, it may be partially due to the anti-drug antibodies we see with our uh, TNF inhibitors. So to finish up, let's briefly go over safety. We now uh, have a very well delineated uh, profile of the safety issues with JAK inhibitors. Uh, like biologics, there's an increased risk of serious infectious episodes. We need to screen and treat and uh, prevent uh, TB. There's a slightly higher risk, higher, there's a slightly higher likelihood of hyperlipidemia, as now we recognize with all biologics as well as targeted synthetic DMARs, which is not translating into an increased cardiovascular risk. Uh, we need to monitor the liver, especially in patients on methotrexate. Uh, rare 1 in 1,000 GI perforations possibly related to the IL-6 inhibition through IL-1. And then there's a the question of increased risk of VTEs, venous thromboembolic events, and, and pulmonary embolism. Uh, shown here is data from the uh, FDA presentation for the advisory board for tofacitinib. On the x-axis, you can see the various adverse events of interest for all of our therapies. The circles are from published randomized clinical trials. The TOFA data for 5 and 10 are uh, the light blue circle in the, uh, in, the, in the box. And what you can see is the rate of all-cause mortality, serious infections, malignancy, lymphoma, lung cancer, MI, and GI perforations is no different for tofacitinib. And this mirrors the data we've seen with all the JAK inhibitors. There's so far been no difference in the safety data uh, for the three approved JAK inhibitors. There is one outlier, which is the risk of herpes zoster. That is definitely increased with at least the three approved JAK inhibitors, and we're awaiting on data uh, with um, filgotinib. Uh, baricitinib, uh, just to point out to you, the risk of zoster was increased. This is from their integrated safety database. But what they had a very peculiar thing which raised an issue, and that was in their randomized clinical trial portion, placebo portion of their trials, they had five DVTs or pulmonary embolism compared to none in placebo. So the Barry 4 milligram at five uh, DVTs or PEs. This led the FDA not to approve the four milligram dose and give them a boxed warning. Uh, and uh, recently with tofacitinib, uh, in a study looking at patients at high risk for cardiovascular disease compared to embril or adalimumab, there was increased risk of VTs and pulmonary embolism reported with the higher non-approved non dose, the 10 milligram BID dose. But again, this suggests that there may be a class effect of these molecules that uh, may be associated with increased risk of venous thromboembolism or PE. And uh, we're awake. we don't understand the mechanism of action uh, or why this is occurring. Uh, but uh, for now, I think in patients who've had a previous DVT or pulmonary embolism or hypercoagulable, uh, the JAK inhibitors, which should probably be avoided as therapy since we have so many other options. Laboratory abnormalities that can be seen are shown here. We monitor for these. Patients will have laboratory every three months, and certainly we need to modify the dose if uh, neutropenia occurs or lymphopenia. Uh, the LFT abnormalities by modifying the dose can be easily managed. 
So to conclude, um, the presently approved JAK inhibitors have similar efficacy and safety. Uh, Filgotinib, uh, the, we're waiting their integrated safety analysis. Will it have a similar safety profile uh, or will it be different? Uh, if a patient fails one JAK inhibitor, will they respond to a second JAK inhibitor? None, this question was not evaluated in clinical trials. It's now being evaluated in the clinic as patients who have failed one are now being treated with the second one. So we should eventually have an answer to this question, and I expect the answer will be yes. Uh, JAK inhibitor monotherapy is effective. We're seeing a trend towards more JAK inhibitor monotherapy and now seeing clinical trial data, which I pointed out to you. Uh, should JAK inhibitors be avoided in patients with previous VTs and PEs? That's my opinion. Uh, again, uh, the data is not clear, and we don't understand why this is occurring. We don't understand the mechanism of this. And again, uh, we've shown you several trials with, uh, uh, with methotrexate and early RA in comparison to the JAK inhibitors. JAK inhibitors were all, all superior to methotrexate, so why don't we uh, utilize uh, this uh, treatment? Uh, right now, we're prevented in general by uh, step edits and um, uh, block, of, you know, because of the cost of these drugs compared to methotrexate, but it's something I think we need to continue to look at uh, in particular patients who might need more aggressive therapy. So to conclude, uh, the introduction of targeted biologic therapies has dramatically improved the quality of life and physical and function of patients with RA. This has allowed clinicians to target LDA or remission as an outcome. Uh, however, even with this improvement, less than 50% of people achieve a 50% ACR response, and less than 10 to 20% achieve remission, which is rarely long-term. Uh, having a number of therapies has allowed us to cycle through treatment to maintain low disease activity or remission, and um, biosimilars are also now available, uh, certainly more across the pond in Europe and the rest of the world where they substantially lower costs. Uh, we await the introduction in the marketplace here and see if this has some impact on uh, uh, cost of members and insurance plans or improves access to our patients. We need and want continued development of newer novel therapies uh, to, achieve, to achieve our goal of sustained remission. I'll turn this back over to Dr. Dunn. Thank you, Dr. Cohen. Uh, obviously, as we've seen, this is a very complicated uh, area uh, with a lot of data and a lot of drugs, and that was a, a great uh, overview. Appreciate that. So I am now going to address some of these strategies uh, that we can employ to reduce uh, access barriers. Uh, I mentioned earlier, I touched on the fact that there are some barriers to treatment in this particular area, but this, the follow-on question to that is, why don't patients receive the best treatment? The question there is, how do we define best? And, and that's difficult, and some of the reasons uh, for that include the, that not every patient is the same. Uh, there are presence of comorbidities. Patients don't always fit the trial design. Uh, variation in study design. So we, we're, with some of the newer agents uh, and some of the uh, affiliated disease states, we, we are starting to see more comparative head-to-head -head data. But we don't have a ton of head-to-head -head data. And uh, studies that are done uh, this year versus uh, 15 years ago are very different. Uh, the patient population is very different. So it makes it much more difficult to making direct comparisons. And then importantly, the, the health reimbursement system is an issue. Uh, there are misaligned incentives, like I mentioned earlier, uh, around uh, the cost uh, of these drugs and the uh, outsized role of contracts and rebates. And it's, it's really hard to move against uh, the older incumbent drugs uh, that may not always be the most effective because of the large economic impact uh, to the system and to clients of the rebates. 
But we do, despite all this, we, we do need to make uh, cost-effective comparisons. Uh, unfortunately, we, when we're making formula decisions, we're relying on incomplete data. Uh, there, is a, there is a general lack of head-to-head -head comparisons, which leads us to make uh, other uh, financial-type decisions. Uh, uh, but if effectively used, uh, comparative effectiveness research can help uh, fill some of those gaps. And I'll, and I'll walk through a little bit of what CER is and how we have used it. So uh, CER, if, if done effectively and appropriately and correctly, can change uh, outcomes and can change, can change practice. So CR establishes uh, parameters to measure improvements by defining uh, what the appropriate outcomes are, what the reduction in costs we're looking at, and subsequently when we combine outcomes and costs, uh, what the comparative value of these agents are. It also determines the threshold of positive effect uh, to alter behavior uh, to all of the respective stakeholders. And so they, that includes uh, patients, providers, and payers. And unfortunately, the system is set up to basically silo those different stakeholders, but uh, if we use a CER approach, uh, we can uh, eliminate some of those uh, siloing issues. Uh, RA, in fact, is a uh, prime target for this concept of comparative effectiveness research because it has a huge budget impact, as we see here on the y-axis, which we've talked about. It's the number one specialty category in terms of spend. And we have a lot of agents uh, on the y-axis. Uh, the number of comparable alternatives now is growing. Um, and we have uh, you know, multiple options. Now, so if you combine those two things, it really is a perfect prime candidate for applying cost-effectiveness research. So other, other definitions of CR include value uh, or cost-effectiveness. Uh, really, it, 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 it's outcomes divided by cost. So we take the efficacy divided by the price. And uh, a good way of, of how we uh, employ or use this value proposition is this, is this quadrant on the right. Uh, if you look at uh, dr uh, the top left, if a drug is less effective and, and more costly, it's obviously a clear loser. The bottom right, if it, an intervention is more effective and less expensive, then it should be a clear winner. The challenge becomes the other two quadrants. If a drug is more effective and more costly, what do we do? Alternatively, if a drug is less effective but considerably less costly, what do we do with that? And that's where formularies uh, play a role, and that's where cost-effectiveness plays a role. So if we do this, uh, what we should be looking at is the cost uh, per outcome. So in this particular situation, it's cost per, per uh, event avoided, it's cost per ACR improvement, um, and that's a way for us to uh, really address the issue of not having head-to-head -head studies. Um, it's not scientific, um, and it's indirect, uh, but it, it's, uh, at, at least it's a better way of doing it um, than you know, some of the other ways of doing indirect comparison. So specifically, uh, you know, here is uh, an, an example of kind of a high level how to walk through this. So we really could be looking at studies that have similar design, similar inclusion, exclusion criteria. Uh, we look at the difference between uh, the drug and placebo or the drug and alternative. We take that delta and we divide into that the net cost uh, per drug, whether per month or per year. You have to kind of marry that and match that up to the outcome measure. And uh, that approach gives us a cost per outcome. And then we can then make uh, more of a tabular uh, comparison among the different agents. Now, but the, the important thing here is that, um, you know, we, we really also need to be uh, holding, uh, you know, the uh, industry accountable a little bit. And that's where some of the disconnect is, is the FDA doesn't require comparative studies. And so the pharmaceutical companies have to do certain uh, studies to get the drug approved. So it's not necessarily their fault. 
uh, but we do need to all collectively work a little bit better on how we can make uh, you know better comparisons. Um, this uh, approach was applied to the JAK inhibitors uh, early. And here, uh, this comes from a publication by Lee and colleagues. And uh, it, again, it was the early data around cost effectiveness of JAKs as first line therapy. So, Lee and colleagues compared uh, the anti TNF agents to an oral JAK inhibitor, and they applied uh, cost utility analysis uh, and reported that in the uh, oral study. Here And here are the results. Uh, so we and colleagues reported that first-line use of oral JAK inhibitors increased the quality adjusted life years gains versus standard of care, uh, resulting in an ICER uh, of $13,000 per quality adjusted life year. Uh, and they also found that uh, JAKs were also cost-effective not only in first-line use, but also in second, third, and fourth-line therapy. Uh, JAK inhibitor-associated increases in the cost were attributable to the increased lifetime drug costs. Uh, they also employed a sensitivity analysis, and the ICERs were between $6,000 and $32,000 per quality adjusted life year, so well within the range of cost effectiveness. And uh, from a societal perspective, the uh, inclusion of a oral JAK inhibitor as the treatment strategy for moderate to severe RA is cost effective. Uh, but there's more to come. Uh, we still do need better guidelines, and we do need to address the uh, issues that both Dr. Cohen and I have talked about, about some of the uh, other misaligned incentives on why uh, we don't have more open access to uh, more uh, different MOAs. Uh, the high uh, drug costs uh, can be somewhat effectively managed by aligning some of the different silos, which includes distribution, plan design, and pharmacy care management. Uh, it also includes uh, IT support tools, uh, incentives, and copay assistance. How we apply those. Uh, this is this is uh, presented in a cogwheel. Uh, manner uh, on purpose, and so they, it really all goes together, and they all need to be, work together to get the output of better uh, outcomes and at a lower cost. And if these all these things aren't working together, then we're going to have problems. So the point of this is we we need to stop uh, working in silos, and we need to, and that includes uh, financial and clinical silos, but also stakeholder silos. So. Uh, you know, if we, you know, we're, are working on a formulary strategy, you know, we, we really have to have some buy-in from providers and vice versa. If there's, uh, you know, better approaches to doing something, then we have to be open to making some uh, some different formulary decisions. And we have to stop the uh, the reliance on this uh, anchor, the, the rebate anchor that holds uh, us down from making appropriate clinical changes. So basic uh, tenets of the specialty drug benefit are listed here. This, you know, we, we know about this. Uh, so you know, that includes uh, utilization management, uh, you know, PA step therapy, uh, preferred drug management, uh, contracting, uh, which is aggressively negotiating rebates to uh, minimize the total net cost of this category, uh, channel management, and care management. And I'll talk more about these here in a second. You know, channel management at a high level is just the uh, how we pay for these things under the medical versus pharmacy benefit and how we utilize that. Uh, specifically, though, the uh, successful RA management, pharmacy management, requires uh, finding the appropriate balance of uh, drug dispensing, uh, utilization management, coordination of care, contracting activities. And you'll notice this is what we call our compass, and it all evolves uh, or revolves around this concept of specialty drug management. It also needs to go hand in hand with the traditional formulary approaches of uh, benefit design, which includes tiering and copay versus coinsurance and all of those associated issues. Uh, traditional benefit design is listed here. You know, historically, uh, we've had a, a handful of tiers where we delineate between generic and brand and specialty. 
um, and a lot of that has been based off of copays. Uh, and uh, you know, we put le less expensive medications in preferred brand tier, and we've only had one specialty tier. So that's, um, uh, I think, a little bit of an antiquated approach. Uh, this next slide shows a better example, and this is where I think the industry is moving. And uh, one of the take-homes I think is if uh, you know you're not. You're, if you're a payer, you're not talking about where you need to be in, in two, three, four, or five years in terms of, of, of a benefit design. Uh, you need to do that because it takes a little bit of time to, to change benefit designs. But here's more of a, a modern, uh, updated uh, concept of a, of a formulary benefit. It includes, it's, it's, but it's not complicated. It just includes uh, multiple specialty tiers and multiple generic tiers, similar to what we've done at brands. And it gives us more of an ability to incent uh, people to use the most cost-effective medications. And it also sets us up a little bit to uh, take advantage of better contracting and uh, biosimilars in the future if they are more cost-effective. We need to put those in a place uh, that is going to uh, cost the patients less money. Um, if, if we don't have a place to put them and we put them in the same tier uh, with the same cap, uh, copay or coinsurance as a brand, there's going to be very little incentive to take advantage of these uh, less costly medications. Uh, we could talk about contracting uh, forever, uh, and I just put this on here because value-based contracting is something that is uh, that is discussed a lot when we're talking about RA. Uh, it's difficult in this particular arena because we're we're trying to marry uh, medical and pharmacy data, and we're trying to marry subjective, not well-defined outcomes, and so it makes it extremely difficult to do. So the traditional contracting, which is shown here on the left, which is uh, you know flat volume or share-based which is usually a very high number based on a limited number of first-line therapies, that's really hard to overcome um, because the numbers are so big and the impact of the bottom line of the pay organization is so big. Uh, it would be super nice if we could uh, move towards a risk-based uh, contract where if the drug didn't work, uh, the, the manufacturer was paying us back the cost of the drug or uh, paying us back uh, you know, the cost of a hospitalization or some associated cost uh, with the failure of the drug. But again, the challenge there is that that implies that we have really, really good data uh, that, is, that is almost impossible to capture, and it's very complex to do. A key component of uh, drug dispensing is, like I said, channel management. Uh, and the channel management also includes this other concept or affiliated concept of site of care optimization. And here's an example of uh, infliximab, a site of care, where the cost of uh, of this, this just comes from internal data, so don't get tied up in the numbers. But the concept is probably consistent across most payer organizations. Whereas if infliximab is infused in a physician's office or by home care, the average cost is about twenty-five thousand dollars. If it's uh, but but the ranges of the cost of infliximab in a uh, hospital outpatient department it ranges anywhere from thirty-eight thousand dollars to one hundred twenty-six thousand dollars. That doesn't make any sense to me. That the same drug can cost. Uh, five times more than uh, the drug in a different side of care. So we need to uh, refocus, uh, if we're not already, on uh, side of care optimization to make sure that these drugs uh, are dispensed and infused in the most cost-effective setting. Uh, specialty care management uh, is a huge uh, issue uh, given the cost of these drugs, and it really entails combining medication therapy management and uh, disease management. So. Um, when, when we're, whenever these patients, or whenever we have a patient on these drugs that are very expensive, we really should be care managing them and uh, basically doing a, a medication therapy management intervention on them. That includes uh, integrating with care management, making sure that the drug uh, is dispensed in the right arena, 
uh, sure that they're on the right dose, making sure that the patient is adherent to medication, and that they are uh, that education is continually done. So patient engagement here is extremely important. We what we've what we've seen and what we've learned over the years is that we can't tell a patient what to do. Uh, they have to be part of the plan, and so continually re-educating them and, and engaging them will definitely drive outcomes. So actions of a successful care management program uh, must include designing uh, the, the workflow and integrating with care management, uh, analyzing uh, utilization uh, to, to select uh, targeted disease and disease states and drugs, and then training personnel. So the, the people who are talking to our patients have to be really experts in this particular area, and they, they need to know about the classes, the medications, and then the operational components like the, the channel management and side of care issues. One slide on uh, biosimilars, uh, Dr. Cohen alluded to it in, the, uh, in his conclusion. Uh, we could talk about this for hours, um, but I, I just I want to point it out because um, I, I was skeptical for a little while uh, on biosimilars, but I'm, I'm now a little bit more hopeful. Uh, but you can see here that this uh, shows some of the potential uh, patent losses of some of these drugs. But I want to point out here that uh, we're not getting help here. Uh, the, they're, due to litigation and, and settlements and other things, the, uh, the, the branded lifespan of these drugs now has been uh, extended well past when they should have been off of, of patent. So that, that's a problem. Uh, so that's a challenge, I think, to the FDA and whoever else is involved, is that we need better pathways to get these drugs approved and on the market. The other things, though, that we need to address in order to make biosimilars successful are, are obviously cost. And uh, this is unlike, let's say, an oncology biosimilar that we're now starting to see, where we don't have rebates. It's really easy to uh, have new patients start, start through the biosimilar, and everybody saves money. The challenge is much more difficult than RA in this particular arena, though, autoimmune, because of the existing rebates. And, and the rebates are, are large. And so if we are to move towards a biosimilar, then we are violating contracts and we lose rebates, and it actually increases the cost of the system exponentially. So uh, if we are to make uh, biosimilars successful, uh, obviously, the cost is the number one issue, but the second largely important issue is interchangeability. And that's also where we need uh, help with the regulatory bodies, but also with providers. That if we can't move market share and can't change a patient from a brand to a biosimilar, then we're just going to end up costing everybody a ton more money. So uh, uh, hopefully biosimilars can uh, help save money in the future, but this is a very, very unique uh, category. So to conclude, um, RA uh, requires lifelong treatment. It places a substantial economic burden on the entire healthcare system, on individual patients, and on society as a whole. Uh, co the cost of the, the, the drugs to treat RA are very high, and they continue to grow rapidly. Uh, the impact of that, and now our health plan employer groups are asking to do some kind of crazy things uh, to manage these costs. And we're going, and if we don't address this collectively, we're going to see riders, and we're going to see exclusions. We're going we're to see all kinds of things uh, that are long-term detrimental to the patient. So payers require better solutions, guidelines, uh, treatment algorithms that uh, help uh, the form their decision making uh, be better. So those are the issues. Here are here are the real issues um, that need to be addressed. I mean, contracting is what's driving our formulary. So you know we we can't dance around that. Uh, it would be nice to have uh, some figure out some way that we can uh, move towards indication-based formularies, um, excuse me, indication-based contracting rather than indication-based formularies. So, uh, you know, a, a particular drug may be more cost-effective for RA, but less cost-effective for psoriasis. And right now, our contracts don't allow us to 
distinguish between those two, two disease states. The contract or the rebate is on the drug. It's not on the indication. So one, one solution would be to uh, leverage uh, our formularies and our lives to move towards indication-based contracting because re the rebates right now are, are, are an anchor. And uh, I, you know, th I'm off in the weeds a little bit, but uh, as payers, we have to provide rebate guarantees to clients. And, that, and, and we don't win business if we don't have competitive rebate guarantees. And this particular category contributes to a, a, a large uh, proportion of those rebate guarantees. And so it, we, uh, we can't, and that's, that, that's, the, that's the anchor, that's the barrier we need to move away from. If, if we can't move away from that, then we're going to end up uh, with uh, older, um, less effective, but uh, lower cost uh, formularies. So in real conclusion, in real summary, uh, RA is the uh, number one spend under specialty uh, by a long shot. Uh, most of the total cost of care in this particular arena is the, is driven by the drugs themselves, not not the medical offsets. Uh, but having said that, uh, strategies that we can utilize to mitigate some of these costs are uh, multi-tier specialty formularies that allows us to leverage uh, benefit design to get better pricing on these drugs. Uh, it also provides an incentive to the patient through out-of-pocket to use the more cost-effective medications. Contracting has to change. Uh, channel management should be effectively employed where we can move some of the, let's say, infused drugs to the pharmacy benefit and use specialty pharmacy rather than buy and bill. Uh, care management and specialty pharmacy management, like I said, are, are extremely important. We're spending so much money on these patients that we should have, we should build uh, uh, care management programs um, that we're interacting with patients and making sure that they're using the drugs appropriately and they're using the right drugs so that we can save money. Uh, biosimilars. Uh, potentially play a role, but they have there's some inherent limitations uh, based on cost and uh, inter lack of interchangeability. Uh, so it, uh, it the key here is that stakeholders uh, need to work together to break the rebate cycle and to drive the, more, the most cost-effective options. Um, if we don't do that, and we continue to be work in silos and we're antagonistic to uh, each other, then uh, everyone, including the patient, is going to lose in the long run. So that concludes uh, the formal presentations, and we will now move to the question and answer sec section of the presentation. Thank you. So we have a couple minutes, so let's just jump right into the questions, and thank you to those who have submitted questions. Uh, I'm going to, uh, for the sake of time, combine a couple of these, and uh, the first one I'm going to direct to you, Dr. Cohen, and there's two parts to this. Uh, the first part is range of motion, and the second part is diet. Is there, uh, what, what is the role of those two things in the treatment of uh, RA? And then uh, is, is, something, is it something we should be counseling about? Well, it's certainly something that uh, we receive questions about all the time. Uh, as far as range of motion, we're a real uh, proponents of exercise to maintain mobility. So we encourage our patients to do uh, general range of motion exercises, uh, uh, isotonic or isometric type exercises to maintain mobility with the one caveat is that if a patient does have an inflamed joint uh, with aggressive range of motion exercise you could aggravate the inflammation so but in general we want our patients to exercise to help uh, with the maintenance and mobility but in this day and age with the therapies we have that's not as uh, big of a part of the treatment uh, armamentarium as it has been in the past because most of our patients have very little in, uh, in the way of active disease if they're appropriately treated. As far as uh, diet manipulation, although we would love to believe and hope that there is some uh, data that uh, really shows that 
diet can reduce inflammation. It's still controversial. Uh, we receive anecdotes all the time from patients who tell us they modified their diet, top gluten, plant-based diet or whatever, and they felt better, which we applaud them for. But uh, we don't really have any good, robust data from clinical trials to support any particular dietary manipulation makes a difference. So we will support uh, people trying anti-inflammatory diets of any nature, but we want them to do that along with their conventional therapy. We would not want them to uh, go on their own way without uh, pursuing appropriate therapy, which we know is uh, very effective in close to 70% of patients with RA. Great. Thank you. Uh, there were several questions around biosimilars. Uh, both Dr. Cohen and myself touched on those a little bit. Uh, we didn't go into, into a deep dive, but uh, there were questions around uh, the, the impact of biosimilars in this category, uh, price points, and then a question around are there any guarantees that biosimilar prices will be much lower. And I will just say, uh, in kind of lumping all those together, this, um, you know, we're about 10 years behind uh, Europe. Uh, we only have a handful of biosimilars now, and typically what we've seen is the first one comes out at about a 10 or 15% discount, and then as others enter the market, the price comes down. Uh, and that's going to be great in categories like oncology, where we don't have contracts, and we can and we can just focus on new starts and and, and start new patients on the biosimilars, and then everybody will save money moving forward. This category is much more complicated. It's the most complicated contracting category that we have, and it's the most expensive category that we have under the pharmacy benefit. So the rebates are the issue. And I and we and we have, you know, every every payer on the phone has, whether directly or indirectly, has really large rebates in this space. And so uh, a biosimilar is going to have to legitimately be 60, 70, 80 percent discount uh, for it to even be worthwhile to go towards the biosimilars. But the other issue is we're going to have a have the mechanism in place to move market share quickly. Because if I'm, as a payer, going to move to a biosimilar, I'm basically voiding the contracts I have and I'm violating the contracts that I have. And if the market share stays with the originator, then the the rebate and the rebates go away and the originator, the costs basically double. And so the the, the obviously the, the most important thing is how much less money the biosimilars are. But then the second huge issue that goes hand in hand with that is the ability to move market share, and that's going to be the biggest issue because. Uh, there's going to be some educational needs. There's going to be some uh, physician hesitancy to switch somebody that's, that's stable on a biologic to a biosimilar for cost reasons. Uh, but again, if we don't move market share with literally within a quarter, we're going to end up costing ourselves millions and millions of dollars. So th those are the biggest issues in this category. Uh, but again, we're working through things that we're, you know, as, a, as an, in an attempt to be as pr proactive as possible, things like multiple specialty tiers. We, I talked about that. That's something you can look at in your organization, um, education, uh, because probably the biggest uh, interesting way we frame this with the provider is if somebody's been on one of these products for 10 years, they've probably been on 20 different products because of how the manufacturing's changed or whatnot. So it's not dissimilar from going from a reference product to a biosimilar, but we're, we're going to have to work through that. So I'll stop uh, with that at this point and just uh, open up to Dr. Cohen. If you have any comments before we close around biosimilars. No, no, I, I just totally agree with what you have to say. I mean, there has to be something that uh, benefits the individual, individual patient for them to be willing to consider uh, switching from a therapy that's doing well for them to a uh, therapy that's less expensive. They have to gain some benefit as well. Yeah, the, I think the biggest thing that would fundamentally change everything would be if the FDA or, or whatever the regulatory environment is or, or entity uh, makes the pathway to get interchangeability a little bit uh, easier. That That would be... 
the, the one thing fundamentally that would change our ability to manage this category and, and ultimately save everybody money, including patients money in the long term. So we will end there. Uh, again, thank you for submitting questions. Uh, hopefully you found the presentations uh, enjoyable and beneficial and have a great day. Thank you.